Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Hello and welcome, dear listener, to the final JOSPT Insights podcast for 2021. With me are JOSPT Insights co-hosts extraordinaires, Dr. Chelsea Kuman and Dr. Dan Chapman. Welcome, Chelsea and Dan. Thanks, Claire. It's so, so, so great to actually be with you. We're on the other side. This is exciting. Absolutely. And hey, well, we've actually made it through another trip around the sun, as they say, a whole year of weekly JOSPT Insights podcasts. Congratulations. Congrats to you too. Congrats to you, Claire. Thank you. And I also want to take the opportunity to thank all 46 guests who have contributed to the podcast this year. We are wrapping 2021 today and we'll take a couple of weeks off and, and come back in the beginning of 2022. All of the guests that we've had on this year, I think you'll both agree, they've contributed so much and we're so grateful for the opportunity to sh- to share, help the guests share their knowledge with the JOSPT community. Oh, no question. I mean, this this round of guests, I, I really, I, I learned so freaking much and I I'm, I'm, I'm hope our listeners did too. It was phenomenal just to get to know all of these amazing people, get to hear their thoughts and get to pick their brains to, to be able to chat to so many phenomenal people. Such smarty pants. Totally. Now, so often I hear that physios or physical therapists share how their experience of an injury or an illness helped them better understand the patient that they're working with, the challenges, the fears, the triumphs. And today, I guess we're kind of borrowing from that experience because I'm turning the tables on both of you, Chelsea and Dan, from interviewer to interviewee today. I don't know if I'm ready for this. <laughs> uh, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. Uh, it's it's the um, the pressure test. So we, the, the pressure that we put on our guests is kind of turned back on us today. So that's it's a bit of fun. I'm going to do good. my best to channel yeah, our excited. interviewers, but whew. I think it's going to go well. And I also want to take this opportunity to publicly say a big thanks to both of you for all the work that you've done to bring JOSPT Insights to our earphones and earbuds each week. You've got a pretty special and I think an authentic blend of irreverence and rigor. You really ask the questions that matter to clinicians and you really ask those important questions that draw out the bottom line for clinical practice. And certainly that's what I really value from listening to the JOSPT Insights podcast. I love that. And I I think and I hope that our listeners love that too. Thank you, Claire. It's it's been uh, an amazing experience. And uh, I, I also really want to say that I value how open everyone that we talk to, everyone we talk to has such great insight into the way that we can frame and structure an episode in order to make it best for those who listen. The listeners don't have the benefit of the visual that Chelsea and I have at the moment. And um, Dan, you're doing a great job at juggling (laughs) multiple competing places where your attention is on the podcast, but also on your your little child. So it's great to have a fourth person on the podcast today. We have our five-month-old Zaya here uh, joining us for this episode. So (laughs) bear with us, everybody. I would like to put it on the record that this baby is extremely cute. So cute. Absolutely. Now we're wrapping JOSPT Insights 2021, as I said today. So Chelsea, where are we starting? 
Okay, so we went through and chose, okay, this was probably one of the hardest things I've done all year. Like reading the freaking patellofemoral CPG, all like thousands of pages of it has nothing on trying to pick us more favorite episodes because we loved, we loved our guests. We loved the topics that we talked about. Um, sometimes it was just like, oh, we loved a part of, a, of an episode of just like one little thing that they taught us. Oh my gosh, it was so difficult, so much more than I ever thought it would be. Um, so, but we're gonna start today with one of the top ones that actually got one of the most listens um, with the um, just incredible Dan Lorenz. Episodes number 56 and 57, this was a two-parter where he talks about late stage ACL rehab. Um, and he provided us some good, just some really good takeaways that we can actually apply in the clinic right away after this podcast. Can't be. Uh, a, a decathlete PT where you're, you know, you, you're an expert in all the movements and all the, the different patterns that they have to do. You just can't. What's the impairment? That's your job. Your job is to eventually cut them loose to uh, their sport coach. That's okay. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah. So, and also, I think that also should put some people's minds at ease about like, oh my gosh, I don't have to know everything. You know, you still know their movements. You can incorporate them into their rehab, but you don't have to, like, you know, walk them through plays to, in order for them to... To return to no, school. because the same therapists that are saying that, I want to ask them, can your athlete hinge? Can they perform a perfect bodyweight squat? Can they hinge on single leg? Like, I, we are not doing those things. Right. Uh, as so, yeah. as a whole. So, again, that is your job. Do those things and everything else will fall into place. It really is that simple. Squat, push, pull, hinge. A wise professor told me a long time ago, and I cannot emphasize this enough. If you ask me, Dan, what's the one nugget you would give to any therapist? I don't care if you're five minutes out of school or 20 years out of school. Be an expert at the basics. Understand how to load, how to do it the right way, how to figure out the load and execute the lift. Uh, hop test. If you, if that's the, to me, that is the minimum necessary. Like uh, before you consider releasing the sport, if there's any hesitation or concern there, uh, from hop tests. Uh, if you're having a hard time, you should be able to appoint, get to a point where you're not even sure which one's the injured one anymore. Uh, but that said, uh, we will do the, the IKDC, the ACLRSI. I'll measure uh, quad girth at both 10 and 20 centimeters proximal in the joint active range, uh, passive range. I mentioned that soft tissue compliance. Can I push the heel to the glute? Does it, is the push feel the same both sides that needs to be equal? Uh, and again, I think a lot of people don't have it. I have the luxury of having isokinetic testing, so we'll go through that. If you don't have that, handle dynamometry is, is, is a reliable way. I did it for a number of years in my own private practice. You can do it. Yes, it's not perfect, but there's a few studies that have shown that it correlates to isokinetic. We do do an anterior step-down test. We go through the, uh, the, the standard hop test that everybody knows. We also have added the medial hop test based on uh, Bart Dingenen's research recently. I do a single leg vertical jump. We do a few of those, of course, and look at that. I look at reactive strength, so ground contact time. There is another test I use. It's a medial lateral cone. The cones are eight, uh, 18 inches apart. They're six inches high. It's for time. Reverse course, go back, and they take two trips, and I time it. You know, what I, I loved about this episode is, is, is he really goes over focusing on impairments. Our job is to make sure that the athlete or the patient in front of you is capable of taking on the demands of whatever, whatever they're, they're going back to. And focusing on what they're capable of tol tolerating allows you to break it down into the metrics of range of motion and mobility, raw strength, 
power and power, which is really, really different from just raw strength and then movement quality and jump retraining. And so they're actually able to respond to the ground with confidence. And then obviously the psychological component. And, and I think he's, he says pretty well that, that, that if you're really focused on like ultra specific sport specific work, there's probably a lot on this list that we haven't actually fully fleshed out yet. Thank you to Dr. Lorenz. Chelsea, Clip number two. Clip number two is, this is um, episode 35. It's called Tell Me Your Story. This is with Joe Belton and Professor Pete O'Sullivan. And this is one, Claire, that you did the interview, but man, this was one of my favorite ones to listen to because from the outset, right, the goal of this episode was to like how to approach a clinical encounter with compassion, care, and confidence. And I'm like, okay, I do that every day. That's not that hard. Um, but no, I was so humbled and they both, both guests were, were able to provide such like great insight into like the mindset that's most appropriate for how to build that connection. They gave practical tips for it. And they also gave some tips about how to like feel confident in these new skills, because it's not necessarily what we learn, at least in the United States in physical therapy school. You don't have to fix the hard things that you hear. You don't have to fix the things that have happened in someone's past that were part of their journey to where they are now. You don't have to fix those things, but you can acknowledge them. Being able to acknowledge like how challenging and difficult those things are can relieve some of the weight from that person. Because like Pete said, there's so much stigma associated with pain. This isn't easy working with people who are living with pain, especially pain that has lasted a long time. It's hard because it is emotionally difficult for for anyone who has to hear these hard stories. So I think self-compassion for the clinicians is important, too. And just recognizing this stuff is hard and that most of us aren't going to be good at it all of the time. You know, can you share your story with me? How did it begin? How does it feel? What do you what do you think's going on? Uh, what's the impact this is having on your life? You know, what what are your goals? What are your what are your hopes for coming to see me today? But really simple, open questions that open up this extraordinary wealth of information. And if you actually just practice those questions versus, right, what brought you in today? Where's your pain? Where is it now? What aggravates or what eases it? You know, do you have any pain at night? Do you sip in the morning? Like those might be very useful questions that come out of like, how does it impact you? But how does it impact you then raises, it's impacting on every aspect of my life, my social life, my family life, my ability to work, my ability to sleep, my ability to um, manage just to think. To me, what I what was so powerful here was this very simple question of tell me a story opens so many opportunities. It's it's really easy. Well, there was, there was a couple of things. There's one that there was just a really small thing. I think, well, not a small thing, but it sounded like a small thing that Peter O'Sullivan first mentioned, and that was that that you know make sure that you're not in a busy clinic where the only thing that's separating your patient from the other patient next door is 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 three feet and a curtain. You know, because like you might feel safe in that environment, but maybe they don't feel safe in telling their story where someone might be eavesdropping, and so it might be important to recognize that and then bring your patient into a private treatment room or a private treatment state space where you can actually ensure that they're, they're in a safe space where they feel supported to share, share their story. And so I thought that was really important, but then also with Joe, you know, it's really, really easy to fall into the routine of, okay, I have 15 patients to see today and I have, I'm going on a date later tonight. So I need to make sure that like all my documentation is done before I get out the door. So, uh, you know, I just got, I got to make sure I'm typing during this objective and I'm staying ahead of my documentation. You can't do that. And then also 
try to actually make a genuine connection with the patient that's in front of you. And especially with a patient who's been dealing with pain for a long time, this is the type of patient who's probably gone to 50 doctor's appointments and told this story 50 times. And if they sit down and they've maybe been waiting two weeks to get into this appointment to see you, and then you're looking down at your computer, like it's over, like you missed the boat. Chelsea, I believe we're heading back down the body a little bit, back to the knee. It's true. Um, It's hard to get away from ACL and knee rehab (laughs) in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sport Physical Therapy. So in episode 34, we talked to Hega Grindem, who pretty much goes over the COMPARE trial, which was published in the BMJ. And it's just the latest evidence for managing ACL injury because I feel like I'm getting that question more and more. There's the research out of the Delaware-Oslo collaboration for copers and non-copers. And so it's it's just been um, an interesting interesting way to look at it lately. So we chose this one because one, Hege is a boss, and two, because it was just a, it was just really great new information that we can share with patients in our education. So um, the COMPARE trial basically says that whether operative or non-operative, there, there was no big difference in quality of life, osteoarthritis, functional outcomes, performance tests, muscle strength tests, or return to sport for early versus no surgery. Really interesting like considerations to take when you have someone who comes in with an ACL tear. Um, that surgery may not be the most cost-effective and may not be the number one choice for them depending on their goals. This clip talks about, um, it just addresses one of the main questions that clinicians may have when treating patients who may or may not benefit from surgery. So she goes into the tips for people to identify, for clinicians to identify who would benefit from ACL reconstruction surgery. Yeah. And as both you and Dan know, Chelsea, this research, the COMPARE trials, building on some really strong research that we've already had for about 10 years in the field now. And I'm thinking particularly of the Canoon trial from Sweden. And there's some some great research coming out of the UK that we'll hopefully see published in the next year or so, also looking at comparing surgery plus rehab to, to rehab alone. For me, the challenge is often that patients and, and often clinicians I t- too, I think, we, we're in this mindset where it's almost like you have to have surgery to get back to your sport. And I think that's absolutely true for some patients, but it's perhaps not true for everyone. And I'm going to turn it over to Hagen now because she does a great job at kind of walking through the challenges of that clinical scenario, but also the latest evidence and information that will empower you and liberate you as a clinician to share the best information with the patients that you're working with. The first thing is that the rehabilitation that we do is progressive and is intensive enough so that we detect if there are any in any instability problems during rehabilitation so that we can you know detect those early and then factor that into the decision to have surgery or not the second part here really goes back to the patient information and the education that people with ACL injury really are aware of and that they know that if they experience uh, knee instability, that's not a good thing and you shouldn't keep, you know, going, keep on playing soccer or football or basketball with a knee that is fairly unstable. You know, oftentimes when we're the PT and a, and a patient is is looking down, you know, whether or not to do, to, to do surgery or not to do surgery, you know, we have so much time with our patients. So our education is so incredibly important using this paper and remembering what this paper applies to. So as you said, meniscus tears, right? Things like that are not 
this patient cohort, but really making sure you understand the data and then using your time with the patient to help them make an informed decision together so that they can move forward, whether it be with PT or surgery, knowing that, okay, I'm making the best decision I can for me. Now, it would not be a best of 2021 if we didn't cover something about the shoulder. And I know that lots of folks in the JOSPT community are working with patients who are struggling with shoulder pain. So Chelsea, can you share a little bit about the next voice that we're going to hear talking about the latest evidence on managing shoulder pain? This is episode 51. This is Lori Mishna, and she covers the GRASP trial, which looked at They try to compare supervised versus unsupervised, basically is how they set it up, progressive resistance training for patients with rotator cuff tendinopathy, rotator cuff related shoulder pain, shoulder impingement, whatever you want to call it, and found that there was surprisingly not a big difference, which was fascinating. And then in this episode, we also, or she also shared the sexy trial, and that was the, they compared groups who received basically more or less progressive resistance exercise training. And it turns out they both improved. Just like fascinating stuff. I mean, it was a little disheartening to hear that maybe unsupervised was also, those people also got better. But the biggest, I would listen to the episode because she really goes into maybe why that could be and why these big trials are really good for big data and getting big ideas out of things, but also maybe that personal look at each patient and maybe why they would have benefited from a certain intervention. So this clip we uh, chose because it just kind of summarizes the practical applications of that both of these huge trials uh, provided, putting this incredible amount of data into what you can kind of use into your practice. What I loved about this episode is that Laurie really walked through the, how do you tailor your program to the individual patient in front of you? Because this is the big challenge, right? When we look at research, it's a population level, it's averages. And then I think Laurie was really eloquently able to talk about how for some patients, home-based rehab where there's not the regular check-ins is going to be absolutely fine. And yet for others, it's it's not going to be sufficient. So look, you know, working really closely with the patient in front of you, figuring out what's going to work best for the patient, and then jumping onto a rehabilitation program. So I think that the the GRASP trial is really liberating in that sense that it's it's how you apply that evidence to the individual. Does this all mean that we should chuck out resistance training? There's just, it's just no point doing resistance training or strength training for folks with rotator cuff tendinopathy? No, no, no. We should continue to do resistance training. The question is, how much dose? Do we need to do a lot of dose to get a bigger effect? The SEXI trial seems to indicate no. Do we need to do it always supervised? The GRASS trial indicates no. But progressive resistive exercise? Yes, yes, yes. What are the benefits of resistance training? If it isn't getting the muscle bigger or getting more peak force, why use strength training or resistance training, however you'd like to frame that? Realistically, we're seeing local changes and central changes that are likely, or we haven't seen them, but we in other trials have shown exercise can benefit at the local level, improving muscle activation, for example. Research is not just what's on the paper right? It's, uh, it's the patient in front of you. And I think it's, uh, just as you said, liberating to be able to say, hey, if someone's really motivated and someone, they just need guidance on what to do, they don't need to see you twice a week for you know four to six weeks or anything like that, right? But some people really do need that supervision. If you send them home with an HEP and say, come back in four weeks, they're just going to come back the same or worse. So it's applying the research and the evidence to the patient in front of you. And I love how Lori made that so incredibly clear. Chelsea, back to you. I think we're going to talk bone stress injuries now. 
Yes. So this one was so good. I mean, this paper, it started with a really great paper. And then Stu Warden was able to take all of this paper and turn it into like a wonderful interview. This is episodes 48 and 49. It was a two-parter because there was so much good information on here on how to manage bone stress injuries. This is with Dr. Stu Warden. So Basically, he goes through this phenomenal paper. He takes us on a little like return to pathophysiology back to like I was back in my desk at school uh, on how bone undergoes targeted remodeling. He introduces the concept of optimal loading, which is so incredibly important. One of the biggest takeaways from this entire interview was that. And then he hits on kind of the all six of the key components that they highlight in the paper of the best way to rehab a patient with a bone stress injury and then also how to prevent it in the future. Whether you see these patients all the time or you only see it once in a while, this stuff is really, really helpful. It absolutely is. And I think we also hear a lot about optimal loading in terms of muscle injury and in the sports physical training world, and not so much as it relates to bone. But as we know, load is relevant to every single tissue in the body. So for me, it was really helpful to, as you say, get a refresher course on thinking about load and and the response of bone to load. So let's have a listen to Dr. Stu Warden. Getting back to running, you've gone through that first sort of acute phase of the the process where you've got symptoms during walking and even you might have resting pain, night pain and so on. And So once that settles down, then the question becomes, okay, when can I start running? And if we go back historically, it used to be a certain time after sort of diagnosis. It would be six, eight weeks, 10 weeks that, okay, you're so far out from, you know, a certain period of time period out from your injury, you can start running now. But we now know that you can do this sort of optimal loading approach where, like I said earlier, that optimal load is the load that basically doesn't produce symptoms. So once someone's pain-free with with walking during normal sort of life and they're pain-free during activities of daily living, then they can start considering uh, returning to running. And so normally we require an athlete to be pain-free for at least five days. So they've got to be pain-free for five consecutive days during normal life. And then we check that they have a, uh, a pain-free hop to make sure that they can tolerate uh, higher forces. And if they can, they can tolerate a hop and they're pain-free for five days, then we can start a progressive walk-run program. You know, one of the parts I loved about this episode, because I'd never heard this before, was that bones get bored. If you're if you're implementing a bone loading program, then you get so much more, or I should say really that the, the bone gets desensitized to that repeated load, even within just a few minutes, let's say if you're if you're going for a jog, like after that many impacts. And so if you're shooting for that that optimal bone loading program, you'd be a lot better off spacing it out several times throughout the day. Cause once you stop, then the bone starts to get resensitized. And so you can really implement that and, and optimize your programming by spreading it out throughout the day, rather than telling your patient, Hey, you know what, just get this done. If it's, if it's easiest in the morning, get it all done in the morning. You know what I mean? But spacing out throughout the day is going to be so much more effective. Absolutely. Now bones might get bored, but we don't get bored. And Chelsea, we're up to our final clip for our 2021 best of. So can you introduce the last one for us? Yes. And we're back to the knee. I'm so sorry. Anybody who doesn't like to treat knees, but uh, again, there was just so we had so much great content on knees this year. And this was one of my favorites. Dr. James Drees in episode 36 talks us 
gives us a nice review of meniscus tears. And there are so many things that get missed in, in primary education and that unless you have a great person to teach you these things about meniscus tears and the location of them and the direction of them and how that influences so much, you miss it, unfortunately. So I was, we were so excited to talk to him. We branched out of our rehab world a little bit. And just the biggest thing is, you know, we've gotten research on, okay, we should wait bare after meniscus surgeries. No, we shouldn't wait bare after meniscus surgeries. How are we deciding this? Also, we should have meniscectomies. We shouldn't have meniscectomies. How should we decide this? Again, the patient education aspect of this, when people are asking our opinion on it. Dr. G's just really outlines, he, he outlines the anatomy of the meniscus, reviews that, the different fibers that are involved, um, what parts are really related to the ACL or the PCL, depending on kind of where they attach in the anatomy, what parts of the meniscus provide stability, and then how all of that influences where that tear is and then how the post-op protocol is determined. How is a protocol decided post-meniscus repair by the surgeon? For me, it really goes back to back to the anatomy of the tear and the way in which the, the way that that tear affects the knee joint, how it's affected by early weight bearing, how it's affected by range of motion. So for starters, most meniscal tears are posterior. They're going to be loaded more in flexion. So that's why we protect flexion usually 90 degrees for the first four weeks. But it's simply because the posterior tears get loaded more in higher degrees of flexion and lower degrees of flexion should affect them much less. In terms of weight bearing, that is really dictated by the orientation of the tear and the way in which that tear is stressed by, by early weight bearing. For instance, a peripheral longitudinal tear, bucket handle tear, once that's reduced and really securely fixed with suture, early weight bearing and extension should actually have a positive effect and not a negative effect on that because it should help to compress the tear against the meniscocapsular junction and not have a distracting effect. Obviously, if you weight bear in, in flexion on that early, that, that can be different. Um, but even arthroscopically, what we see is once you reduce these tears, if you keep the knee extended, these tears stay reduced. It's only once you flex the knee that you start to see the distracting force and displacement of it once again. So I'll let those people, they can do 50% weight bearing as far as I'm concerned in extension. You know, when I was listening to this episode, the thing that kept screaming out to me was we need better, uh, a better emphasis on multidisciplinary care, a better emphasis on easy communication between physicians and physical therapists, because a lot of times PTs get a protocol and it might be, they see the same exact protocol time and time and time again, and they don't know if it's for the same meniscal tear or different meniscal tears, we're, we're losing out on optimal rehabilitation by not having better channels of communication. Really what came, came out of this for me was, was how important multidisciplinary communication is for multidisciplinary care. I think that wraps us for 2021. I want to again, thank all of our listeners for joining us on this wonderful adventure in 2021. Thank you again to all of our guests. Thank you so much to Chelsea and Dan for wonderful hosting. We wish everyone in the JOSPT community a restful end to 2021 and we look forward to joining you back here, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, as I said, early in 2022. So thanks from me. I'll just say thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all our guests and also to our listeners. We love to hear from you. So if you have questions, if you have comments, please always feel free to reach us on Instagram or Twitter or wherever you can find us, uh, email, you name it. We love to hear from you.
So thank you. Yes. And thank you. Thank you listeners. Thank you to also Claire and Dan for just putting so much um, effort into this. And also like all these interviewees, I mean, this is, they're taking, they're taking their time out to share their incredible knowledge with the world of rehabilitation. And so we are just so grateful for that. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.